0: Changed his tone in front of you when I saw him this morning. He said, "Wow, Wes really did scrape the bottom of the barrel, didn't he? <laughs> he must have really been stuck." <laughs> um, if you have your Bible, open with me to Second Kings chapter four. If you're here. Um looking forward to a sermon on the sign of baptism you have to come next week um, so we're gonna look at second Kings chapter 4 while you're while you're turning there I do um, just want to take a moment to thank you so much the last time Jenny and I were here uh, was to receive a love gift from uh, on behalf of you this congregation um, I think motivated through the women in the church uh, it was a well-timed gift for us around Christmas time we thank you so much for uh, how thoughtful you are of our family uh, and how well you reach out out to us, uh, and so we're excited to be here this morning. Uh, so if you have your scriptures, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4, kind of a lengthy passage, but I'll be reading from verses 8 through verse uh, 37. So hear with me God's word from 2 Kings chapter 4. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day when he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, Carry him to his mother. And the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother. The, The boy sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please, send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. (laughs) Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. But when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. And when she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son and went out. Let me pray for us. The Lord and our God, we come to you this morning and pray that you will give us Eyes that see, hearts that understand, and ears that hear the message that you have for us from Second Kings this morning. Lord, may we see your goodness and truly see the goodness that you have for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1992, Anthony Graves was found guilty of a murder that he didn't commit and was sentenced to death row for a crime that he continually protested that he didn't have any part in. And he sat on death row for 18 years longing for somebody to hear his case knowing that he was in a place where certain death was awaiting him. A place where death hung over that cell every day of his life and he knew that he had no hope unless somebody would finally hear him and give him an opportunity to plead his case. That moment came for him in October 2010, when after 18 long years, finally the Supreme Court listened to what he said and found that he was not only in fact, uh, not only in fact, was was completely innocent, but granted him a stay of execution and allowed him the opportunity to go free. In his life, he saw firsthand the experience of the power of the Supreme Court to give him life, where he was sure of certain death. A place where death was reigning in his life, he, was, he found the hope of new life. And so it is in this passage this morning in 2 Kings chapter 4, we come to a passage too, where the author's intent on showing us, in a sort of bizarre story, the power of God to overcome the power of death. The power of God to give life where death reigns supreme. So this morning we're going to look at sort of three divisions, three points in this passage, the way that the author uh, sets it up for us. First, we're going to see a divine reimbursement on God's behalf. A divine reimbursement. Second, a divine removal. And finally, a divine resurrection. So a divine reimbursement, a divine removal, and finally, a divine resurrection. As the story opens up in the first three verses, we see Elisha coming into contact with this woman from Shunem. And we're not told many details of the story and how they met, but most scholars, uh, most scholars figure that from Elisha's hometown to Mount Carmel, which is the place where he would go and minister and spend time in prayer, was probably a two-day journey. And Shunem was a city that was in between those two towns. So, for a two day journey, he would need to have a place where he could go and stay and spend the night and eat some food and someone to take care of him. And as he would go and continually stay in this town of Shunem, this woman started to notice him and invited him over to her house for dinner. And so we see in uh, verse 8 that one day as Elisha went to the city, this wealthy woman was there and she urged him to stay for a meal. And as time would go on and as Elisha would continue to make this journey, we see a great gift on behalf of this lady. She said to her husband one day, you know, this guy comes and we give him a meal, but what if we built him essentially a guest house? We'll build him a room on the roof of our house and put it in a bed and a lamp and a table and a place that he can have sort of a home away from home. Is an incredible uh, sense of generosity on her part. And so she and her husband agreed to this arrangement and they built for him a a room that whenever Elisha could come, he could stop and shoot him and spend the night and carry on the next day to go to Mount Carmel where he could go and engage in ministry. And as time passed, as the story continues, as we get down into verse 11, one day Elisha is in there with his servant Gehazi reflecting on this woman's goodness He thought to himself, well, what if if we could give her something? What if we had the opportunity to repay her a gift for what she's given? And you can see their challenge. What do you give a woman who has seemingly everything? She's very wealthy. She has her own place. She's able to build for him a room, his own sort of guest house. And so the one thing that they could think to offer her was a sense of peace in the midst of of a foreign nation. And so they said, well, what if we spoke to the king on your behalf? What if we spoke to the commander of the army to give you peace and protection? And her response is, I don't, I don't need that because I have a home among my own people. And so as Elisha is sort of scratching his head and trying to figure out, what can we give this woman? Gehazi very perceptively notices, you know, this woman has no child. She has no son, and her husband is old. If you look with me down in verse uh, 15, Elisha says, call her in. And so when he called her, she stood there. And In verse 16, Elisha says, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. And do you notice how quickly she protests? This is a dream that she has long suppressed. That she says, there's no way, as I have dreamt many nights of having a child of my own, I don't even go down that road anymore. And so she protests to him. And she says, No, my Lord, don't mislead your servant. Oh, man of God, don't mislead me. Don't set me up for failure. I've been so excited so many times. Don't do this to me. But what she failed to see that in a place where death has reigned supreme, in her literal, in the womb of her body where she has been unable to give birth, where death has had victory in her life. She was about to see the power of God to give life. The power of God to renew her body, to give her life in a way that she could never imagine. I sort of wonder what her life must have been like, especially as we get down into verse 17. It says the woman became pregnant, and about that time, the next year, she gave birth to a son. I wonder what thoughts went through her mind as she started to feel that baby kick in her stomach and started to realize the pregnancy taking shape and realizing there's life growing in a place where death once reigned. What was God doing in this story? What is God showing this woman in this passage? She's a wealthy, well-off person, but here's the one thing that her resources can't provide. And what God is showing her is His goodness to bless His people. He's making good on His promise in Psalm 113 that it says that God gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Now, if you're like me, you probably get a little bit tired of the health and wealth gospel. You can listen to TV at any, uh, seemingly any day and hear preachers call out and say, if you just believe that God will give you all of these wonderful blessings. And so often, I think in our response to that, we almost grow cold and we forget that God loves to bless His people. And He's showing her His goodness. In a sense, He's repaying her for her generosity, but He's repaying her in a way that's far greater than anything She's ever sacrificed. One of my professors in seminary used to say, You can't outgive God. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> you can't outgive God. Even God himself says it. Test me in the tithes and the offerings and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven for you. Jesus commanded Peter, after they'd fished all night and they didn't catch anything, go back out into the dead waters and cast out your nets again. And the catch of fish was so great that it broke the nets. And Jesus showed Peter and the disciples on that day that he has power to give life where death is reigning supreme. See, God's showing her his goodness and he's showing her that he is a God that she can trust. Because she's about to encounter one of the darkest periods of her life she's about to encounter a place where, again, her resources will not be able to help her. And she's forced to look back on, is this a God who I can believe in and who I can trust? You see, because this isn't the end of the story. It's not just that God has divinely reimbursed her for her generosity to Elisha, but too, as the story unfolds, we see that in the providence of God, He takes the life Of this boy. A divine removal. Look at how the story progresses. Verse 18. The child grew. And one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. And he said, my head, my head. He said to his father. And his father told a servant, carry him to his mother. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. Elisha promised her at this time next year you will hold a son in your arms and the next time we see her holding a son it's her son who's died in her arms. There's precious few details of his life and it's almost as though he's born only to die. And the question is what is God doing in this passage? Is this some sort of a divine joke on God's behalf? Testing her? Challenging her? What is going on? remember a number of years ago whenever I was growing up I was a, a huge baseball fan and I know that uh, this story is somewhat dated but it's a story that's always stayed with me uh, being a huge baseball fan you may remember the story of Dave Trevecki uh, a pitcher who spent many years in the minor leagues finally made it to the major leagues this is his dream to pitch in the major leagues only one night to discover that he has cancer in his throwing arm and amputation is the only remedy after finally making it to the Major Leagues, his pitching arm that he has ridden to finally make it, there has to be amputated. And you kind of wonder, what is going on here? And I know too, even this morning, if we took the time to share testimonies from everyone sitting in the pews this morning, that each of us has stories of unreconciled questions, where we question the providence of God, and we wonder, what is going on? We don't always have the full view of Scripture like we have in this story where we know what the end is going to be. And so we enter into this narrative with this woman as she's holding her dead son in her arms and we wonder and we weep with her and we mourn and we wonder, what is God doing in this story? You see, for her, a son isn't just a dream. Even though that she's wealthy and even though she's prosperous, many of you know that in this culture, a son... Guaranteed the future of her livelihood. It guaranteed the future of her family name. It assured her that in old age she would have an insurance policy, a son who would provide for her. So the loss of this son, in many ways, signifies the loss of her own life. And in this, God is challenging her who will you trust? Who will you trust? He has shown her such wonderful blessings and goodness that she knows there's only one person I can run to, and I have to get to Elisha figuratively because he is the one, he's the way that I can get to God. God has proven his goodness that he has the power to overcome death and to give life, and so this is the power that she's experienced, and she knows she has to get to Elisha. So we see at verse, uh, at verse 22, she calls her husband and she says, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God. So I can go quickly and return. She knows that she has to get to him. And in this story, as it gets very bizarre, we see the power of God to divinely resurrect her son. Not just divine reimbursement and not just a divine removal, but a divine resurrection that she's going to experience firsthand. Now, the details of this story from here forward get very bizarre. Elisha tells Gehazi, run with my staff and put it on his face. And that doesn't work. And Elisha goes and lays on top of the boy. and The boy gets warm, sort of halfway comes back to life. And then Elisha paces around and does it again. You kind of read this and say, what in the world is going on? And then you read the commentaries and they get you even more lost. as Theologians have speculated what's going on here. But I think God is showing us a picture of who he is and who his character is. See, if you trace this story from the beginning of Genesis, you see this overarching overarching narrative of God like a parent, like a parent who has a gift for his child... And he knows that Christmas is coming and he's revealing a little bit more of that present because he's so excited. He's telling him a little bit more. I got you a present for Christmas. And the little child is so excited and comes back and says, tell me more. And, God, and the parent says, well, I'll tell you what color it is. It's, it's red. And the little child gets excited and runs back and he still has no idea what his dad is going to get him for Christmas. And so too, God is, from the very beginning of creation, showing us that he has an amazing gift. For which we have no comprehension of understanding. It started early in Genesis with the story of Enoch. That Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. He was taken and the question is, what happened to Enoch? And then you fast forward a little bit and you come to the story of Elijah. And Elijah taken on the chariots of fire into the heaven itself. And you start to see this picture unfolding of God communicating to his people that death is not the final victory of this life, but that I give eternal life. That it's on my heart that I prepare a place for you beyond this world. That death is not the final answer, but I give life. And so we see Jesus in one of his greatest miracles going to Lazarus and calling him. After three days in the grave, Lazarus comes forth. After the man should have been rotting in the grave, he came forward and they unwrapped the grave clothes from him. And he walked forward. And so too Jesus, on the cross dying to take our sins on Him, dies to defeat death and to give life for those who come to Him in faith. We live in a world where death reigns victorious. We live in a world where death has the final answer, but it's the reason that Paul can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? because when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead three days in the grave he proved that he has the power to defeat death and to give life where death has reigned. You see this promise of God to give life where death has victory isn't just true for a woman from Shunem and for her boy but it's true for you and for me today. For those who will come to Christ by faith, that Jesus says, I will be with you always. I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, I promise I will take you with me. I would urge you this morning to consider God's call on your life. Do you have this assurance in life that you know that death is not the final answer, but that Jesus has assured you life eternal in His presence? In heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you that even in this passage this morning, in a bizarre sort of way, we even see your goodness. To overcome the circumstances of our life. To give us life where we are hopeless. To give life where we are helpless. Lord, I pray that you will give us the faith... And the eyes to see your goodness this morning. And like this woman, we will run to you and embrace your gift to us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.